Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. LiquidChurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Money, 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 money. <laughs> well, tonight we actually kind of touched the third rail. Sensitive issue for most of us. And uh, you guys know, I mean, you ask a personal question. It's one you get here asked all the time on TV. What's in your wallet. And that is a revealing question. And if you are like me, it is not one many of us like to answer. When it comes to personal finances, most of us like to keep it, well, personal. Uh, we don't like people to know how much we earn or like what we have in the bank. And the only thing more troubling than the idea of others like knowing how much we earn is them knowing how much we owe, <laughs> what's not in our wallet. And if this crowd is like the average cross-section of, of Americans, that means that actually very few of us here are living with financial margin. Uh, margin, as we've been defining it in the series, it's that, it's that extra space between our load, what we take on, and our limits, what we can sanely handle. You remember this thing? And in the case of personal finances, money margin would be the space between our income, that is what we take in, and our expenses, what we spend. Pretty basic. Most of you are familiar with the process. Each week, maybe you get a paycheck, what we call income, and for a lot of us, in it comes and... Out it goes, right? In fact, let me start by just kind of getting personal with you. I, I, even though I don't know many of you personally, I know a few basic things about the financial situations in this room. Here's what I know about your finances. One, every person in this room, anyone listening or watching online, you are living on a percentage of your income. Profound, right? Profound. The second thing I know is most of you don't know what that percentage is. See, all of us are living on a percent of our income, and some of you are living right now on 90%. That is maybe like you got a 401k thing at work that like takes five, and then you're saving some, some, and so you're living at like 90% of what comes in. Uh, some of you are, are living at 80%. Maybe you're, 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 some of you are tithers. You give 10% back to God. Maybe it's, maybe it's to our church. So you're automatically down to 90 to start, and then you save another five, and so you like live at like 85%. But then there are others of you who are living at 100% of your income. And it comes, out it goes. And where it goes, I honestly don't know. It just flows through your hands. You identify with this? I lived like this for a long time. And you, and, and you, and you honestly just think, you're just like, well, this is going to be a short sermon because if I just had more money, I'd have more margin. It's not a, it, but, but you know, actually, that's not the truth. Because you've gotten raises and bonuses or extra has come in, but all, that just seems to just disappear too. And you have no idea where. You, you can't seem to save or make any headway because there's no large, you're, you're living at 100%. And some of you, many of you, have major credit card debt. Maybe you have a your car payment or lease payment, outstanding loan, and you're actually living at 110 or 120%, but you have no idea because each month you're able to make the minimum monthly payment. And so like everything just kind of, it feels okay in your world, but the truth is you're actually flying upside down, kind of up a creek. You're living at 110, 120%, and that's like unsustainable, but you don't really want to think about it. And you don't really know how to stop the bleeding because you kind of got to acknowledge, like, where, where are the leaks in my foundation? And ignorance is bliss anyway, so who wants to talk about it? Just talk about God. Who wants to talk about money? Well, part of the process of moving towards financial balance or margin with your money is to first acknowledge where we're at. So let me just kind of raise the awareness level by giving you just like a little quick quiz, okay? We'll start real simple, see where you're at. Uh, true or false, Americans carry $7.3 in personal debt, not including real estate and mortgages, okay? Not, not no mortgages, just $7.3 billion debt. True or false, what do you think? Survey says false. Americans carry $7.3 trillion in personal debt. What's another $100 billion, right? 
Individually, each American carries on average $8,000 in unpaid debt at any time. And, and you may be thinking like, well, finally, I'm above average, uh, you know, when it comes to a subject in church. So if we had like 400 people in this room right now, that would be like $3.2 million of unsecured debt here today. If you had another like, if you had like 4,000 people listening or watching online and they're just average, that would be another $32 million of unpaid debt in the liquid community. That's a lot of cheese. Now, that's not A-Rod money, but that's a lot. <laughs> and, and you shouldn't feel bad because you're not alone. Newsweek actually estimates that 60% of Americans spend more annually than they actually bring in. And less than a third of everyone who has a credit card pays off their balances each month. Less than, less than a third. Scary stuff. It's no wonder the issue of finances is very touchy and so stress-producing. I mean, I, you know, those of you who live with no margin, you know what it can be like, Right? The, the strain, the pressure of being constantly strapped, living hand to mouth or going through life, never knowing exactly how much you have. You're kind of like ish. It's like I got like a 800 ish in the bank or where it all goes. Like I owe like a few thousand ish. I don't know. Or where it's going to come from next. That is a heavy way to live. And it's actually a source of shame and embarrassment to a lot of people. That's why we kind of keep it under wraps. Well, tonight, what I wanted to do with this last half of our series on financial margin is briefly look at what's really driving this issue. Because guess what? It ain't money. And then give you some practical steps for you to take towards financial health and balance this fall. Because the Bible is not silent about this topic, and money is a crucial issue if you're serious about following Jesus Christ. In fact, another quiz. True or false? Jesus said more about money than heaven and hell and prayer combined. True or false? True. A full 15% of everything Jesus Christ ever taught about is on the topic of money and possessions. Isn't that incredible? More than 15%. But again, it's not to shame us or add to our load. Remember, Christ invited us w- w- into this life when he said, take my yoke, my way of living upon you, for my yoke is what? Easy. My burden is light. And if you are acquainted, okay, with, heavy, with debt, you know it's not easy and light. When you are running as fast as you can to keep up with bills, minimum payments, and you've got creditors knocking down your door. Now, now, here's the other deal. In a crowd this size, I also know something else. Each of us is at a different place on this economic spectrum. Just in, case, just in talking with you, I know some of you, for instance, who, who don't have a job and, and you're hurting financially right now. It, it is really tough. It is re, it's really a struggle. And, and there are some of you maybe, or, or maybe you're like just married or, you know, you got a couple of kids and you're actually wondering like, how are you going to make all this work? How are you going to keep all the plates spinning? You're like, this is not sustainable, but I don't, I, I don't know what else to do. Um, and then there are those others of you I know personally who are actually making six digits <laughs> and, and things are going quite well for you. Um, to me, that, that, and some of you are like, who, have them raise their hands. I want to sit next to them, you know? <laughs> That's actually one of the cool things about a church as diverse as ours. You don't know if the person sitting next to you is a penniless college student or like, you know, a millionaire day trader. Most likely, you are probably like, some, like me, somewhere in the middle, right? I mean, a, a decent job. Maybe you do make ends meet, but you, but you do feel the pull, don't you, of nice stuff. And, and there's a reason for that. See, we live in one of the most voracious consumer cultures in the history of civilization. Every year, Madison Avenue spends billions of dollars telling us one thing. What you have is not enough. And encourage us to upgrade, supersize, and spend more on everything. Our meals, our homes, our closets, the stuff in our closets, our credit cards, because that's the path to happiness. And as Americans, we're known for a lot of stuff, for being, you know, for being, you know, patriotic, self-reliant, and just wildly materialistic. We shop Till we drop, yes? Till our feet ache, and then we buy a new pair of strappy shoes and shop some more. 
for, for, for too many of us, it is literally like our appetite for consumption is never satiated until the next thing. Like, what is your next thing? I know that you're starting to think about this because if your mail is like mine, you just started getting these. This is my Saturday mail, right? How many, what are you getting in the mail now? Christmas catalogs, right? Here we go. Right, salvation by shopping, Vanity Fair. Uh, front gate, here's if you need, you know, if you just happen to need like, I don't know, like a, you know, $3,000 hot tub or something in the back. Um, you know, here, uh, you know, whatever this is, the L. Bean or like J. Crew or something like that. Here's some icy, maybe you want to get some icies for somebody for, for Christmas. Um, th- I don't even know what this, look at this, this is kind of funny. This is like, I don't even know what this is. There's a picture of a family and they're all wearing the same pajamas. Like, what, that's so like, cultish. I don't know what that is. It's weird. Uh, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to upgrade? You're going to get some, you know, gadgets this, this year, MP3 player, whatever. Um, or maybe you're going to go on a vacation. This is the time that you actually go away. It's really incredible because uh, I don't want to alarm you, but you know what? There are only 39 days left until Christmas. Yeah. Do you hear that groan? It's like all that energy went out of the room. Envision the world as a candy store. Only the bins are full of adult candy, right? Digital cameras, laptops, big screen TVs, cruise ships, luxury hotels, exotic vacations. And the ad says there are some things in life money can't buy, like happiness. But for everything else, there's MasterCard. Ding! Offering the sweetest rewards on the planet. And you realize that's a commercial for the rewards program, so catch that. The commercial is if you buy enough stuff with our credit card, guess what we're going to do? Da-da, you get more stuff. You get this? We realize money can't buy true happiness and that you are probably literally bleeding red and stretched to the point of breaking point financially. But take heart, more junk is on the way. Your spending has not gone unnoticed with us. We've seen it, your trips, your cruises, and guess what? There's more of it and you don't have to pay. That to me is priceless because this is advertised without a shred of irony and sold as the American dream. At least that is what we're told. And fortunately, many of us are discovering that the American dream actually isn't all it's cracked up to be. I mean, honestly, I mean, just get real totally Ken. When a husband and a wife are constantly quarreling because money problems are just draining the joy out of their marriage, you know what? That's not a dream. When a college student maxes out her credit cards and actually has to spend the first like five years of her work just, just paying them off, that is not a dream. Or when a young, you know, couple, if you go to buy your first house and, and you overspend, you end up strapping yourself, having to work more and more and more just to, just to make the payments on, on the month, on the crippling mortgage. That is not a dream. When a family with kids can't even save for the future because they're drowning in, in debt, that's not a dream. It is, it's a nightmare. Our opening song by Switchfoot, I thought put it pointedly, when success is equated with excess, when we're fighting for the Beamer, the Lexus, at the heart and soul, breathing the company goals where success is equated with excess. I want out of this machine. It doesn't feel like freedom. This ain't my American dream. I want to live and die for bigger things. I'm tired of fighting for just me. This ain't my American dream. Blindly pursuing the American dream literally can become a nightmare, a source of constant worry and pressure. And when you walk through life overextended and you're trying to keep up on the treadmill of consumerism, you know what happens. You walk around, actually, with this low... You might look at it on the outside, but this low-hanging cloud because you know what your bank statement looks like. Well, here's the good news. Wherever you are, God wants more for you than that. He has a different dream for you. It is a life of financial margin where you actually have enough. This sense of content that you actually... Your basic needs are being met 
and this sense that actually you don't have to simply run with the crowd headlong into financial ruin, but instead actually invest in real treasure, right? Treasure that doesn't actually just break or rot or destroy you. Treasure in heaven is what Jesus called it. And it is possible. God, wherever you are at, God has a different dream for you financially. And today we really start a three-week journey together, okay? So I'm, I'm pretty excited about this and I want to dive right in. So let me invite you to turn with me to Exodus 16, okay? You can grab your Bibles in your seats there. Um, but we've been anchoring this series on margin in the Old Testament, which is kind of an interesting place. We're learning that at the heart of God's dream for our life is this ancient concept called Sabbath. And, and the idea is really that God just created us with limits, uh, that a need for margin for rest from our work, from our consumption, is actually vital to our well-being. Um, this is what we were originally designed for as the people of God, freedom. When God first gave the Sabbath in Exodus, God reminded his people, the Israelites, remember, he called them out of bondage. They were slaves to overwork. And he proclaimed, he said, you are now free people. And I give you the Sabbath as a gift to remind you to live free and travel light. But that's not exactly how it went for the Israelites. Only a month and a half out of Egypt, they wound up kind of lost. Wandering around in the desert, in fact. And they spun their wheels for 40 years. 40 years doing donuts in the desert, recovering from their experience. And this is where Exodus 16 picks up. And I think if you look at this, if you examine this carefully, this ancient text, you will see God laying the foundation, the, the, the principles for living free and a culture that encourages to live marginless lives. So let's read through this together. Uh, Exodus 16, and you can make some notes as we go along. We'll start with verse 1. It says, The whole Israelite community set out from Elam, and came to the desert of Sin. That's the Short Hills Mall, which is, <laughs> which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. So 45 days and they, they, they've been out of Egypt and they enter the desert. And in the desert, the whole community began grumbling against Moses and Aaron. That's their leaders. And God's people said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There, we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food that we wanted, but you brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And the first thing we quickly learn is that marginless living in a material sense is driven by one thing, not a lack of money, but a sense of scarcity that I don't have enough right now. See, most of us believe that financial margin is a matter of income. You're, you're like, well, well Tim, I, I, dude, I'd love to have margin, but I don't make enough. I, you know, you're like, if, if I, I would love to have margin, dude, I just need some more money. You think that? And the reality is that's not the truth. At the core of this issue is attitude. And the attitude that drives marginless living is actually what I currently have is not enough. And I deserve more. Most of us, even the most impoverished person in this room, actually have quite enough if we measure ourselves in comparison to the rest of the world. Go back to our quiz. Since 1950s, Americans alone have used more resources than A, everyone who ever lived before them, B, the combined populations of the entire third world, C, the Romans at the height of the Roman Empire, D, all of the above. All of the above. Since 1950, Americans, we have used more resources than everyone who has ever lived before us. Each of you, this, I, use 20 tons of raw materials annually. Americans throw away 7 million cars a year, 2 million plastic bottles an hour, and enough aluminum cans annually to make 6,000 DC-10 airplanes. See, the truth is margin is not a matter of income, what we earn. It's a matter of lifestyle, what we consume. See, the idea here, folks, is that it usually is supposed to work this way in your life. 
the more you work, graduate in years, the, the more your income is supposed to go up. You see on the graph here, years in a horizontal, income on vertical. So the longer you work in your job or your career, your income is supposed to increase as well. If it's like going down the other way, God may have a different job for you, okay? But this is the way it's supposed to go. And the problem is this. While it's supposed to steadily go up and to the right, we are conditioned to simultaneously raise our level of consumption, often at a point that exceeds our income. So if we get a raise and we also need, you know, a, a new car, then it's like, oh, awesome. Now I can get the leather too. I can get the six to exchanger. See, we immediately reposition the set point of this graph in proportion to what we make. And here's the deal. Again, it doesn't matter what you make tonight. Okay. Just, if you make $20,000 a year and you get raised to 40,000, th- then you're like, well, awesome. I can finally get, you know, my, my first apartment. Or if you make 40,000 and then all of a sudden you advance to 80,000, double it. You're like, oh, now I can actually, I can afford a starter home. And if you hit the jackpot and you're like, you know, you move from 80,000 to like 150,000, you're like, well, why not build from scratch? And I'll get someone to take care of it. Housekeeper, right? <laughs> and if you're like a 300,000, and I know some of you are like, who is it? You start thinking actually about, you know, what would make a good investment? I think a second home, actually. That's a smart thing to do. The point is, just as our income increases, we're conditioned to increase our lifestyle as well. And it often goes up and to the right and actually surpasses it. And guess what? Totally unsustainable. It is automatic in in American culture. And the amount of money we make has actually very little to do with financial margin. So this is not about your money. I know people who make six figures, friends of mine, who are stretched out, stretched in, living with zero margin. And you know what? They have a lot more money than me, but I have a lot more margin than them. Because margin is about lifestyle, not dollars. The tragic mistake is that when we increase our spending, as we increase our income, it becomes unsustainable. Because you know what? The line does not go up and to the right forever. Companies downsize. People do lose their jobs. Disability happens. Emergency expenses occur. And when we live without financial margin, when our lifestyle upticks or outpaces our income, then there's a crisis. And it awakens a sense of scarcity that just gripped the Israelites, right? If only we died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, then there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. It's irrational. This is not anchored in reality, but it feels true. And it opposes margin. You ever hear those words? I'd rather die than go without that. I want you to imagine this. God's people were literally 45 days into freedom. They were in slavery for decades, being worked to death. And they're like, yeah, but at least we got to eat out every night. I mean, yeah, the Egyptians were bad, but but at least we had steak. And it was a buffet, everything you wanted. See, margin is made up of little lifestyle choices like this. In fact, check this out, like eating out. Did you know that a moratorium on eating out would improve the average family's financial margin by $100 to $200 every month. Over a decade, that's $20,000 of margin, just if you stopped eating out. But some of you are like, well, dude, don't go, or, don't go there. Eating out's a big deal. It's part of my lifestyle. And so you're like, you're, you're just like this. I'm like, not eating out. What, do you want me to starve to death? You know, come on. And that attitude, you know, it starts like in the teen years, right? Like, but dad, if I don't get a new dress for the prom, I'm going to die, you know? It's, just, it's kind of teenage entitlement, but we bring it right along with us into adulthood. It just happens to be more sophisticated. So you're like, it, it, well, okay. So if, um, if cultivating money margin meant not leasing something new, but trading in for something used, well, I, I just couldn't do it. I, I'm used to that new car smell. I mean, how do I downgrade to a Tercel when I've had a Lexus? If money margin meant downsizing your house or where you live, whatever, 
you know, the, the two mortgage thing actually isn't working out anymore. We actually have more space than we need. It's nice having like a, like a sub-zero kitchen and all. But our quality of life is poor because two jobs constantly strapped, always worried, always living on the verge. But if it meant downsizing, well, I, I just couldn't do that. I mean, how do you move from five bedrooms to three or two to one? I mean, when you've had 3,000 square feet, how do you live with 1,500? I die. This sense of deprivation rises up and drives marginless living. On a smaller scale, if living with financial margin meant not spending $5 every day on a double skim vente cinnamon latte, well, there's just no way. Now you're irrational. That's my one pleasure every afternoon. And it's not a lot. I mean, is it? Actually, that's $2,000 on coffee every year. And you know coffee, you don't even consume it. You just rent it. You just take it in and just move it over somewhere else. And you're saying, you, coffee and beer, you, you, don't, you rent these things. You don't consume them. See, we have this sense of scarcity hardwired us into the beginning. This actually goes back to Genesis 2, right? Adam and Eve, God is like, hey, I'm setting you in this world. I'm giving you everything. Everything in the garden is yours. Consume whatever you want. It's all yours. Just, please, there's one tree I'd like you just to kind of, you know, just refrain from if, if you'd be okay with this. And in slithers a serpent and says what? Did God really say you may not eat from any tree? In other words, focuses on what you don't have because you don't want you to see what you actually do. The serpent lied and we bit the apple on that one. And our expenses go up and to the right. So what's happening here in Exodus 16 is God saying, I actually want to teach you a new way to live. Okay? I want to show you this. And if you go back to verse 4, it says, here's what I'm going to show you. The Lord said to Moses, here's what I'm going to do to show you guys. I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out every day and gather enough for that day. Give us this day our daily bread. In this way, I will test them and see whether they'll follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they're to prepare what they bring in. And that's to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. Because you know what the seventh day is. It's the Sabbath. In other words, there's a day you're not going to work, so you need to save some. You see what God's saying? Here's the deal. It, I, will, I will provide your daily needs, and it will be enough. But here's the deal. You will need to trust me. See, financial margin is a deeply spiritual issue. It comes down to trust. Do you believe that if you actually were content with less, that God would actually provide more than enough? I mean, gather enough for that day. I'll test them and see in a ways, a test of our margin, our, con, our consumption when it doesn't outpace our income. That's a test of our heart. It's a gauge of our relationship with God himself. Like if we had a sense of enough, could he be trusted to provide? Well, look at the results here in verses 11 through 15. It says, um, that evening quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. And when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they didn't know what it was. So I want you to catch this. What happens here? God says, I have heard your grumbling and I'm going to provide for you. Here it is. Every morning, God rings the chuck wagon triangle and he's like, come and get it. And every morning people poke their head out of their tents and they're like, well, what, 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 what's, what's waiting? And he's, and he's like, breakfast. And they're like, well, what is it? And he's like, frosted flakes, right? They're great, right? Look down at the verse 31. It says, the people of Israel called the bread manna, which literally means what is it? Um, it was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. And what they did is they would ground it up like grain and make it into honey tasting pancakes. Not a bad breakfast. And what's notable here is that God provided it every day, but it melted away at noon. In other words, I'm going to teach you something about portion control. 
And it was just what they needed. Not what they wanted, but what they needed. In fact, underline that key phrase in verse 21 there. Each morning, let's read it together. Everyone gathered as much as he needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much. Two omers, those were like a quart or a liter for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. So the first thing God does is he reestablishes a distinction between what we need and what we want. And that line is totally blurred in our culture. That's the whole point of advertising. To take your basic needs and inflate them so that they actually grow into wants. I'll give you an example. Uh, you guys know this. As humans, we've got like three, they say we have ba- three basic needs, right? Food, something to eat, clothes, something to wear, and shelter, right? Somewhere to live. Let's take that last one, shelter, okay? I want to see if you can distinguish between needs and wants, okay? And you guys can just yell out, is it a need or is it a want? How about this? Um, you know, a, a place to live. Okay, need, right? House, condo, apartment, town, whatever it is. Everyone agrees shelter is a basic need. But you look at it and you see the guy just kind of sitting there and it's kind of like, well, you know, what, you know, where's it going to sleep? You know, you need something to sit on. You need furniture. Is that a need or is that a want? Okay. And some of you are like, wait, what are you doing, dude? I like Pottery Barn. Don't do this, right? So you go to Pottery Barn, you drop 600 on a sleeper sofa. You got a futon? No, it's a sleeper sofa, man. I'm on 70s. Come on. And, uh, you know, it doubles as a bed. And, and now what are you going to do while you sit on this nice, you know, sofa in your apartment? Thank you. Stare at the walls. How about TV? TV, need or want? I mean, you got to be informed. I mean, how would it look if you didn't keep up with the news, you know, the Daily Show? You got to be plugged in, at least for weather. So you go to Best Buy and you get a TV. Flat screen or regular, by the way? Flat screen, I mean, definitely. That is a need. So uh, you drop 800, 1,000. And if you're going to have a fine piece of engineering like that, you're, what are you going to do? Watch four channels? You need cable, right? I mean, is that a want or a need? Cable. Can you hope to know what's going on in the world without it? <laughs> and the funny thing is, with those, with those high-definition packages, you actually have to subscribe to a premium package, which requires a special feed to like, maximize your viewing experience. So now you've got this 49.95 month thing. And, and by the way, what about HBL? Want or need? You're like, wait, I don't want to admit this church trick question. Um, But $30 more a month, you get the internet too. And I mean, that's a need to stay connected. And now you've got an $80 cable bill every month. So at this point, with your $1,200 a month rent, your $600 sleeper sofa, your $900 TV, your $80 cable bill, you're just thinking like, well, I only need one more thing, another job. So you get a second job, but now you won't be there to see all your favorite TV shows. So of course you need TiVo, thank you, which is only $300 to start with. Never before in society has the line between wants and needs been so blurred. The stuff that we consider the basics of living in the 21st century, it may appear like basic or essential to us, but they are literally the manufactured desires for more that lead to our financial downfall. That is the entire job of Madison Avenue, to blur the line between needs and wants. I was reading an interview with an Ogilvy and Mather marketing executive in the New York Times, and and this is amazing. She said, you know how I define advertising? Creating a need where none previously existed. In other words, basically trying to create um, covetousness in people. Get a sense of discontent that if they don't have this, they'll be missing out, or if they list on the latest fashion, they'll be unattractive. Advertising plays in our insecurities, and it's intended to awaken this consumer appetite that's latent in all of us. Advertising in America is $250 billion a year industry, and none of us are immune from its effects. If you go back to our quiz, in fact, think about this. How much of an average American's lifetime will be spent watching television commercials? Six months, three months, one year, one and a half years. 
one full year watching ads, if you just watch them back to back to back, all with one point, to stimulate that consumer appetite in you. The New York Times estimates, on average, we're exposed. (laughs) Someone just said, that's why you get TiVo. (laughs) Look at you, see? Skip the commercials. 3,500 advertisements every day. That's what the average American's exposed to. Billboards, car, everything. You think that doesn't have an impact? It It gets you thinking differently. It stimulates that appetite, and we mistake basic needs for once. And guess what? Our margin just shrinks. I mean, we don't even have to watch an ad. You just have to, like, look at your neighbors. This is difficult living where we live, northeast. I mean, it's like we live in Oz. Anyone else feel that way? Everybody else seems to have more. Uh, this hit me just last weekend. It's kind of funny. Colleen and I woke up early Saturday. It's like 7.30, 8 a.m. And uh, we woke up because we heard this boom, 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 pounding. It wasn't on our front door. It was on our neighbor's lawn. And we, like, look out the window, and there's this backhoe in the front lawn. And, and it's, it's ripping up their, like, front lawn. It's ripping out all the grass. It's smashing your steps. It's ripping everything out. We're like, whoa, what, Rich and I are great people. I was like, Colleen and I get our coffee. They're like, welcome. We're like, hey, what's going on? They're like, oh, you know what? We just decided to do the yard over and everything. We're like, wow, how long is the project? They're like, I don't know. It should be done around six. I was like, what? We're like, you serious? And literally, the, these landscapers descend on it. And literally, by the end of the day, I have pictures of this. This is incredible. Look at how their walk turned out. This, this is quite something. They laid this entire beautiful cobblestone walk and then literally resodded the entire yard. That whole thing was literally just dirt for six hours. And like around 4 o'clock, I was like, well, how long will it take you to grow grass? They're like, I don't know, 20 minutes or so. And, boop, boop. and they literally unroll, like instant lawn, you know, the, the sod across of that. And, and Colleen and I literally stood there, and, and we were like... <laughs> That is awesome. Congratulations, guys. That, that looks absolutely beautiful. And so we turn around. We got our coffee. We turn around. We start walking back to our house, and then we made a mistake. We look down <laughs> at our walk, which looks like this. And, um, you know, we kind of have that, like, um, distressed slate vibe thing going there, kind of smash stone, you know, vibe. And uh, we were like... What, what the, you know, we look back at their, their walk, we looked at our walk, and, and, and we're like, oh my gosh, you know, we, we've had this thing, it's 40 years like ago, this thing, and we never noticed how bad it was until now. And so kind of like, we kind of look, look at that, and then we look back at their lawn, with this, which is now like this pristine expanse of like master's level golf course, right? And, and like, we look down at ours, and it's patch worn in most parts, in fact, with a huge dirt patch right off the steps where our dog pees twice a day. It's like there, there has not been grass here for the entire time we have been in this house. And we literally are like, what, what, what happened? We, you know, we're looking back at them. And, you know, I, I didn't think like, you know, you shall not cover your neighbor's house. How about their lawn? <laughs> Commandment like broken. You know how we felt? Envious. Inferior. And we literally sat down on our, our, our smash steps. And you know where that conversation actually went? We literally started talking about, well, you know, Maybe why I think right now is the moment to, to, to upgrade because, because I was, you know, I start going this way. I'm like, well, you know what it is, sweet? This, this walk is a menace. This is about safety. What, what if grandma comes for Thanksgiving and she trips on it? How would you feel, you know? In, in the grass, like, we're, we're, we're the, you know, the dirt where the dog peed, why don't we just put, like, a, a pickup on blocks on the lawn? What is the saying, you know, about us? And, uh, and anyway, we started talking. I mean, should we, like, kind of dip into, like, like a, people got, like, a home equity line of credit or something? I didn't think you could covet your neighbor's lawn, but we did. We compare, we covet, then we compete, and then we consume. And margin evaporates every step of the way. We take on debts we can't handle to provide for needs we didn't even know we have. You see how this works? You pull that thread? 
It's very, very subtle. The basic blessings that we then do have from God come to be seen as inadequate. When Colin and I moved in that house seven years ago, we were like, Jesus, oh, thank you so much. This is incredible. We stood in the cover, look at our house. We're like, what a disgrace, you know? And so we upgrade and supersize and supersod to keep up with the Joneses. And those basics, shelter, food, clothing, turn into a contest and eat margin up. And that becomes the single greatest source of anxiety and stress in our lives, according to Jesus. See for yourself. I want you to turn over to Luke 12. We're going to talk between the Old Testament and New here. Luke 12, 22 through 31, where Jesus talks about possessions. And the cool thing is that the title is, is not Jesus talks about possessions. It says, Jesus warns about worry. Read this with me. It says, then Jesus said to his disciples, uh, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat, or about your body, what you'll wear. Life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. Look at these birds. They don't sow or reap. They've got no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Look at how the lilies grow. Look at the flowers. Not in the Lucas's yard. Look at their neighbors. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon and the king, and all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow and thrown in the fire, how much more will he clothe you of little faith? This is incredible for me. Did you look at the word that recurs four times in Jesus' teaching on possessions? Do not let your heart set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. Four times. In other words, when we buy into our culture's values, margin shrinks and stress levels skyrocket. We fixate. My wardrobe is so last season. We obsess and then we spend and we get more plastic from J. Crew, Macy's, Bananas Republic because we want to stay in fashion. More stuff, less margin, stress skyrockets. That's why so many of you feel restless, by the way. That's why you feel so constantly anxious or you can't rest at night. Because when you overextend yourself in material acquisition, margin shrinks. When margin shrinks, bad things happen. It's not just your wallet. Relationships take a hit. You start locking horns with, 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 your, with your spouse because you're starting to argue over purchases. Or, or you start competing with, with your buddies at work for accounts because I, I got it. We start covering your neighbor's stuff and just kind of jealous of your friends who, who have been blessed. And when we're really pinched, guess who, who disappears first? God. Instead of feeling actually just like walking around with gratitude for all that we have, we feel like he's holding out. Jesus continues in verse 30. He says, for the pagan world, what's the word? Runs after all such things. Things are like a treadmill with a carrot. And your father knows that you need them. In other words, here's the truth. Your heavenly father hasn't forgotten. He can actually be counted on to know exactly what you need. He's not as easily fooled. And he can be counted on to provide from you. And then Jesus ends with this countercultural antidote to marginless living. But seek first his, what? Kingdom. And these other, this other stuff, these things, will be given to you as well. In other words, part of curbing my appetite for consumption is so that I have actually margin left over for the kingdom of God, not just the kingdom of me. For giving back to God the, fir- the first fruits of everything that he's given me. And that's the reality, folks. The number one reason for, 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 for generating financial margin in your life is not just less stress, it's so we can give back to God a slice of everything that he's given to us and invest in his kingdom work, not just temporary stuff. 
I mean, this is interesting, but the Israelites, we go back to the desert here, they would not to relate to us for a lot of very obvious reasons, okay? They did not have a Short Hills Mall. They might have had like, I don't know, Sinai Sam's Club or something, but they, did not, they would not relate to us for a lot of reasons. One in particular stands out. In Leviticus 27, verse 30, this was a foundational principle God gave his people. It was a command. He said this to his people. He said, here's the deal. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to me, the Lord. It's holy to the Lord. And the literal meaning of the word tithe here in Hebrew is, does anyone know? A tenth. In other words, God said, here's the deal. Before you take care of your needs and your wants, I want you to first give back to me a tenth of your income, whether it's grain or fruit, they they were farmers at the time, or money. As a way, here's the deal, it's not because I need your money. (laughs) I want to retrain you and reorder your priorities when it comes to to your income. So the Israelites literally tied, they gave the first 10% of their income back to God. And their day would be giving it back to the temple, okay, to pay the priests. Our modern day equivalent would be like the local church. Now what's interesting is that on top of that, the Israelites actually had two other tithes. The second 10% was used for a feast, and the third 10%, which was taken every three years, was for the poor, the widows, the orphans, the destitute. And now check this then. That means the cumulative effect for, for, for the average Israelite's gross income was that they shared literally a minimum of 23%, first with God, then with other people who didn't have anything. So if you went back to our question from the beginning, what percent of your income are you living on? If you went to the desert and asked the average Israelite who's like eating frosted flakes, he said, what's your percent are you living on? He'd be like, um, I don't know, 75, 80, 80%. And we'd be like, why, why, why? Did you like remodel your tent? Like what happened? You put addition on? You got the S series chariot? What, what? You know? And he'd be like, no, I, I tithe. I, I give the first 10% of everything I receive back to God. I mean, it's all his. And then another 10% I actually goes to the poor to help out those people around me who don't have as much as me. And when we look at that, folks, from a 21st century perspective, we go, what? But this is an ancient principle that is being revealed here, folks. The tithe. Giving the first 10% of our income, what God brings into our life, giving that back to him, because it's the only thing that will, it's guaranteed to break the consumer appetite that is deep inside all of us. It's not because God needs your money. It's because you're powerless against Madison Avenue. It's too powerful. It is in the water we drink. It is in the air we breathe. But when we prioritize tithing and actually say, you know what? I'm going to include mandated margin by God first. Something incredible happens. Not only actually do we have enough, we discover we have more than we need. See, the exclamation point to Jesus' teaching in Luke 12 is this. It says, when you seek first God's kingdom, put God first in your finances, Jesus says, you'll discover a surprise. What? All these things will be given to you as well. In other words, you may not get leather seats, but you'll actually have air to actually kind of breathe. You may not have new strappy shoes for every event, but you'll walk lighter. You may not have the latest gadget to connect you to the world at all times, but a sense of my presence will actually pervade all of your life, and that includes your finances too. Instead of putting first your wants, spend only what you need and offer the rest back to God, and you'll be given something you've never experienced before, contentment you will actually have a sense of enough because you realize that these other things I've been chasing after are secondary. 
If you're serious, folks, about sustaining financial margin, you will have to retrain your appetite. And if you want to retrain your appetite, you must begin with the tithe. It is the entry point. Jesus, just like the Sabbath, right? The tithe is a discipline given to God's people as a gift to retrain them, to enter into divine rhythms of money management, not of respite of money management. And when the Israelites gave 10% to church and when they gave 10% to the poor, guess what? God was training them to live on what? 80%. And that is instructive, folks. That is teaching us an important lesson about the kingdom of God. That when God prospers us, when he increases our income, he does so not to raise our standard of living. He does so to raise our standard of giving, of investing in his mission to the world. First through the church, but then investing in the lives of those around us who are hurting and actually need help. That second 10% was for compassion. And God's, I'm going to train you guys, actually, not just for the haves, but for the haves-nots, the widows, the orphans, the destitute. And you're going to realize it's about the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of me. And when we do that, Jesus says, that is the wisest investment you can make. He's like, that's called laying up treasure in heaven. That's the foundation for financial margin. In other words, your finances will have an eternal perspective driving them, not just this consumerist impulse. Tracking? To make that kind of transition, you have to have margin. You, can, you can't. You can love God's kingdom, but you can't participate in his kingdom work in the world when you are strapped financially. You know that. You've had friends. That happens to you, right? They lose a job. They have an emergency or something like that. And you're like, oh, man, I would love to help. Oh, gosh, but I just took on that financial commitment. I am strapped. I, oh, I hope he doesn't see my new car. But you know what, dude? I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to pray that God brings someone along who can help you. Just not me. I ain't got it. And some of us, how many blessings, how many opportunities go by? Because we bought into the bigger is better mantra, we handcuff ourselves. And we are not able to invite then God's blessing into our financial lives. By the way, that's what the tithe really is. It's not about like, well, that's the money you give to a church so a church can like turn on the lights. It is, it is saying, God, I want to open up my financial life to your blessing. See, when we keep that part of our lives closed off, and a lot of us do, just to just be honest about this, money's a private matter, dude, I'm really uncomfortable you know what God says? He just obliges. He's like, no worries. I'll, I'll stay out. He actually withdraws his presence from our finances and says, go ahead and take your advice from Madison Ave, I guess. Let me know how that works out for you. Just remember, my yoke is easy and light. And if you're not feeling that, you're not yoked up. And it starts with a counterintuitive truth. Give back to me first. Just as restoring balance to your schedule begins with a Sabbath. Wait, that doesn't make sense. If I've got too much to do, I take a day off? Yeah. If I don't have enough, I give more? Yeah. Doesn't that sound counterintuitive? Right now, I know some of you are just like shaking your head like, okay, dude. Because it doesn't make sense. If you feel like your checkbook is stretched too thin, taking on another, you know, commitment to God on top of it, that seems counterintuitive. But it's the first step to freedom, God says. And if you take that first step, Jesus makes this incredible promise. Guess what? Those other things, they'll be given to you as well. In other words, you'll get your stuff. God can be counted on to give you what you need. And many times, because your father's so generous, he will actually grant you your desires as well. But the secret's prioritizing me first in your finances, where maybe he's been cut out. Now, I want to wrap up because... um, when you look at how this works out in Exodus 16, you'll see some amazing results of actually following God's path. If you look at verse 17, it says this. So the Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. 
And when they measured it by the court or leader, Omer, he who gathered much did not have too much. And he who gathered little didn't have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. Catch this? When we take God at his word, we are permeated with a sense of contentment first. Those who need more, there's enough. Those who need a little, there's enough. There's neither poverty nor wild excess. There's simply enough in our lives. You know what another word for enough is? Margin. Neither too much nor too little, just right. Balance, harmony, appropriate consumption. Verse 23 then continues. He said, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of rest. A holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake whatever you want to bake, boil what you want to boil. And let's read this phrase together. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. Suddenly we're back to familiar ground. First the Sabbath, right? (laughs) The day of rest. Only this time not from your work, but from your consumption. I remember Colleen said, um, I'm, uh, you know, Tim, I want to save money, so uh, why don't we uh, go to the Woodbury Commons outlets in upstate New York? They have great deals. We got out of Woodbury Commons, and it was like there was smoke pouring out of my ATM card. I got swiped so many times. That's not the kind of savings that God's suggesting here. What God is suggesting that we approach the Sabbath saving, he actually says, store up enough so that what? When the day comes that you don't work, now I'm talking about the Sabbath here, but I'm also talking about your life. The Sabbath equals the day you don't work. When the day comes that you don't work, you will have enough to be provided for because you didn't consume all that you had. So do you see this financial priority list beginning to emerge here? Start with me. Give back to God first. Seek first my kingdom. And you trust me that I'm going to provide. And then save whatever is left and keep it because the day will come when you no longer work. Whether you choose that, retirement, or it comes involuntarily, you lose your job, or you're disabled, God says, save whatever is left and keep that. This is the steps to freedom. And the text says, they saved it until morning as Moses commanded. And he said, six days you're to gather, but on the seventh of Sabbath, there will not be any. There will come a day in your life, folks. I know a lot of us feel young and everything, but there will come a day when there will not be any. And the question is, will you have saved as God encourages us to? That's a sobering question. I mean, I remember when Colin and I were first confronted, there was, we had no savings. We lived hand to mouth for the longest time, paycheck to paycheck. And we had just about enough to get by like today. <laughs> but we live with this nagging sense of like, like what happens in like, I don't know, 10, 20 years here. And we just, you can dismiss that for a while, especially when you're young and stuff. But having kids kind of like sobers you because you won't be young forever. And so God's like, I want you to gather it while you have it, while I give you opportunity and then save, which is wise and necessary in his life because today is urgent, but tomorrow is inevitable. And when you give thought and consideration and careful playing to your savings, do you know what happens? Then you can rest. Enter into the Sabbath. Because the fruits of your six days of labor, when your working days are over, there will be rest. And you'll be provided for. Because you didn't consume all that you had. Those of you with savings know what I'm talking about. All two of you know this. There's a peace of mind that pervades you. This was, it was so hard for Kyle and I to get it started in savings. And we have miles. We have such a long way to go. But we started the journey. And when we finally reorganized our priorities, we actually started tithing and, and, and saving. It was funny because I was like, oh, that's cool. That's going to improve the bottom line. Do you know what the first thing, measurable difference was? Our marriage improved, of all things. Why? 
Because all of a sudden, the conflict you know, simmered down. When I came walking in with a bag from the Apple store, she wasn't like, what'd you do? You know? I started trusting her. I was like, I can let you go to Woodbury Commons. It's okay. Because I know we've invested first in God's kingdom, and then I know we're also planning for the future. We are actually saving, and that's not just going to deep sink some, because we actually have some margin. Do you see this divine order that God is establishing when it comes to material margin? This goes back, folks, to the foundations of creation when he took his people aside and trained them in the desert. The Israelites did not live in the age of advertising. They didn't have, you know, constant bombardment. Mega manna, upsize your breakfast. Yet they struggled to manage their resources God's way, just as we do to this day. This to me is hopeful. I like actually how, how, how the Exodus account ends because it gives hope to a hard-headed person like me. Um, in verse 27 or 28, it says, The Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? And then in verse 30, it says, so the people rested on the seventh day. In other words, the goal of financial margin, folks, is just is rest. It's peace of mind. I'm talking to you. God did not design you to bear the stress and pressure that comes from being constantly overspent up to your neck in debt. You are not designed to be maxed out and then live with anxiety in this low-hanging black cloud that's always over you because you eventually know the bills are going to come due. It will take from very simple, basic, but extremely difficult steps if you want to reestablish financial margin in your life this fall. But here's the deal. You will be shocked by the rest it brings your soul. How it will revive your relationships. How it will restore a sense of peace to your pocketbook. You will actually breathe easier. You actually sleep easier at night. That's the goal of margin, Sabbath rest. I don't know where you are at today in your finances, but if you're like the rest of us, God has more for you. There is more than limping along, folks. It doesn't matter how, how behind you are. There's more than struggling to get by or living hand to mouth or worse. And the important thing is, is that God actually wants us to invite him into the financial area of our lives today instead of keeping it closed off. You're never beyond redemption. Finances are a deeply spiritual issue. We think it's non-spiritual. We're like, well, it's practical like earthly stuff. It's not. Jesus said where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's why he gives such practical advice in his word about how to prioritize our finances. Look at that thing uh, he told Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, and I want you to take this. If he posed this question to you tonight, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? I want you to hear that more as an invitation than an accusation. Because my goal today is not that you now leave here feeling, oh, dude, brutal message, more guilty, more depressed about how screwed up your finances are, but actually to leave here with a sense of hope. Because just as God extended his hand to his people here in Exodus, he does the same thing to every man and woman who claims Jesus Christ as their Lord. He actually invites us back into the black, into a life of holy margin and asks, he literally says, how long? How long will you refuse to keep my commands? in my instructions. I've laid this out for you, my child. It's not complex. It's actually fairly simple, but it will require total attention if you're to get back into the black. You don't need to buy a Suze Orman book. Just follow my instructions. They're simple. Here they are. Seek first my kingdom. 10% to me to train you, 90% to you. Does that seem like it's really pinching you? And once that priority is reestablished, begin to save. Learn to live uh, not just at 90, imagine living at 80%. Why? So you can rest easy. It's about the Sabbath. You remember this? 
where you're no longer in bondage to overwork and you're no longer a slave giving your wages over to MasterCard. I designed you for freedom. That, that is, that is why, what's the book called? Exodus. Because I broke you out of bondage and I called you to live in freedom. And that includes financial freedom, money margin. And if you keep my commands and follow my instructions, I will prosper you. You will find relief not just for your wallet, but rest for your souls. What is your next step today? Maybe you came in not knowing what expecting. And again, I don't know where you are in the economic spectrum. We've all been at different points in it. But maybe you've heard God's voice and he is speaking to you. I know he's speaking to me. I have felt all sorts of conflicting emotions throughout the day. I have to push away. I'm like, oh my gosh, I have so far to go. We're going to actually even dive even deeper into this next week. But this fall, before the holidays hit, what are one or two concrete steps you could take to reorder your finances God's way? How about for next week? Would you consider doing one of these two things next week? Would you consider coming this week actually determining what percentage of income you are currently living on? As I said, most of us have just no idea. It's ish. You're like, I don't know, 90, 100-ish, 10-ish, I don't know. Would you actually be willing to go home and no matter how painful it is, actually crunch some numbers and say, I think this, this is actually what I actually bring in and this is actually what goes out and start there. Would you, would you actually do that? Or maybe it's actually considering the tithe. You've been paying everybody at this point, but God. Citibank gets a prime cut. Your car, your mortgage bank, even your lattes get first fruits. But you recognize something today. This is the moment, this fall, to invite God into my finances. And maybe that starts today. Even though you're already overspent and you've got plenty of places that could go, you take the next step of giving back to God first and invest in his kingdom because all sorts of other things will be added to your life as well. You will not go without. You, he can be trusted to provide. It's the wisest investment you can make if you want to write your boat. You can actually start, you know, you can, you can start tonight in a sense because, you know, we include it in offering every week in our worship service. Folks, that's not, that's not to run the lights or, or, or make the, uh, you know, the cameras and stuff work. The reason we include an offering in worship is literally because we're saying we're coming here, God, and we're opening up all areas of our life to your blessing and your influence, including my wallet. Oh, hard, right? It's hard. I know. By the way, if you're not there yet, by the way, totally okay. (laughs) This is not about like raising like a fundraiser or something or money for our church. That's the least of our concerns. This is about you. About you opening your heart to God and maybe an area of your life that you've closed off so that you can trust your father to lead you into freedom in a way that you have never had. Could you consider one of these steps for next week? Determine what percent of your income you're living on. We'll be walking into what happens with that. And then actually just consider tithing this fall. Maybe you're there. Maybe you just need to pray about it this week. Ask God what he'd have you do. Don't listen to me, all right? Next week, we will get more practical. And I hope you will join us on the journey, even if you are online. This fall's theme theme is freedom. That's, That's it. I want you to imagine this. Can you imagine January? Christmas is over. And you have come through the holidays and you're not bleeding red and you don't have to spend three months paying it all off because you've actually followed your father back into the black. Can you imagine that? It's possible. It's not a pipe dream. But you have to start with God. And I hope you will start today. Amen? All right. Let's pray. God, thank you for being an eminently practical God. (laughs) You, um, 
You're not concerned just about like esoteric spiritual stuff like, like prayer, but about earthy, everyday stuff like our bills, our needs, our peace of mind. Thank you for your invitation, Lord, into a life of financial margin. Thank you for the example of the Israelites. Lord, we see ourselves in them. And so, Father, I would ask for every man and woman and family in this room or following online that this would literally mark a new beginning for them. A new day that we will actually hear your voice and follow your instructions. Thank you for speaking clearly to us, God. Show us the path to freedom. Help us to take a next step this week. Help me, God, today. And lead us on the path tomorrow as we honor you with our whole lives, including our finances. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen.